0: Hello, and welcome to episode number 12 of Arts and Crass, the highbrow, lowbrow film podcast. I am Cullen, and I am a good egg.
1: (laughs) I'm Todd, and Charlie Brown's an asshole.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He really is. This is the podcast where uh, Todd, who is an art uh, cinephile and a connoisseur of independent uh, stuff assigns me an art film to watch, and I, a horror connoisseur, exploitation uh, fiend, assign him a horror or exploitation film to watch. I haven't seen much of his his type of films, and he hasn't seen much of my type of films, so we, we do cultural exchange. Absolutely. So some of you might be saying to yourselves, episode number 12, what happened to episodes 7 through 11? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, um, it's an old story. We've all heard it many times. Uh, We were recording those episodes. We had recorded those episodes on my MacBook Pro, and they were not backed up. The hard drive crashed. Still not exactly sure why. And those episodes are lost on that hard drive, but maybe not lost forever. Um, as anyone who's been through this knows, which I'm sure is probably a lot of you, if not most of you who are listening, because it's a very common, uh, 21st century angst, angst producing experience. Um, data recovery is usually possible, but, very expensive and depending on the type and extent of damage to the hard drive sometimes prohibitively expensive so episodes 7 through 11 will be for the time being will will just be thought of as the lost episodes um they you may uh in the near future or in the not so near future you may get to hear them There might even be, depending on how much interest we can get, we might be testing the waters to do some sort of crowdfunding um, venture to try to get those episodes back. But uh, all of that remains to be seen. But right now, Todd and I have made the decision to soldier on. Absolutely. Uh, to just keep going, doing what we're doing, not
1: let this... No uh, tears over spilt milk.
0: Not allow this to make us, you know, really miss a step. Because uh, I think we had gotten into a pretty good rhythm. That's what I was going to show. bring up. We're getting better at it. And-
1: I think my only, literally my only sadness about the lost episodes is I felt like we were on a constantly progressing um, kind of upward slope. Yeah. And, um, and I feel sad that everybody didn't get hasn't quite gotten to follow that as of yet.
0: However... All of that being said, happy Halloween. (laughs) This is our this is episode number 12, which was always destined to be our special Halloween episode. Mm -hmm. Um, Todd didn't pick a Halloween movie because it's just not I mean, it's not part of his remit.
1: It's not part of his milieu. Is there an art cinema film out there somewhere that was set around Halloween? That's not a horror film but mm. that they still use the Halloween atmosphere.
0: I'm sure it's out there. I'm sure it um, is too. I can't think of one. I feel like I have something
1: in the back of my head. Um, a film set at Halloween that is not actually a horror film.
0: It being Halloween, uh, I have assigned Todd this time around. Um, 2000, I think it, it goes down in history as a 2007 film, although it didn't get a release until 2009. Huh. Uh, Trick or Treat, directed by Michael Doherty.:
1: I give Colin something that I've actually been wanting to throw his way for quite a while. Um, Down by Law, um, written and directed by Jim Jarmusch, because um, I've really wanted to tackle the pinnacle of contemporary independent cinema in America, and there is no better place to start than Jim Jarmusch.
0: And that film's from 1986, Ni- right?
1: 1986.
0: As usual, we flip a coin around this time. And so Todd calls it in the air. Buffalo. Heads it is. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? We might have taken a break. We might be on a new computer. We might be a little a little a little more scarred and a little wiser by the loss of our five episodes, but it's nice to know that some things never change and Todd almost always loses the coin <laughs> toss. Right. We're gonna start with uh two thousand seven slash two thousand
1: nines trick-or-treat. Absolutely. So this is my opportunity to offer you my synopsis coming in relatively blind-eyed um, before, I, um, before I actually began the viewing experience. And as tradition plays for me, I like to read a logline first. Um, so I'm actually reading the logline directly off of IMDb. Four interwoven stories that occur on Halloween. An everyday high school principal has a secret life as a serial killer. A college virgin might have just met the one guy for her. A group of teenagers pull a mean prank. A woman who loathes the night has to contend with her holiday-obsessed husband. (coughs) And a mean old man meets his match with a demonic supernatural trick-or-treater. I think that's an excellent logline, by the way. The film takes place in a small town in Ohio. I'm trying to remember what they actually called the name of the town. It was one of those nice generic Ohio, Warren Valley, Ohio, Warren
0: Valley, Warren
1: Valley, Ohio. And so it appears that this is one of those towns that we all know of um, in North Carolina. It was Greenville, North Carolina that takes Halloween very seriously. It's a big deal. It's the night that everybody has the city party, the town party, and people might even come in from outside towns to this town to celebrate Halloween. Kind of seems like that place. So we see a little bit of this couple coming home from their night out and He is sexually aroused, wanting to say, hey, let's go be a little romantic inside. She has no interest because her mother's coming the next day and she wants to clean up all this ridiculous Halloween decor in her eyes, ridiculous Halloween decor. And um, so finally she gives in and she's like, okay, honey, go inside and put on the tape, which actually is a porn tape is what she's referencing. So he goes inside, she starts to clean up the yard and planning to join him shortly. And She's pulling ghost-like sheets out of their yard and some sort of smallish, maybe, I don't know, half-sized, half-pint human creature-like thing that you don't really get to see comes and tackles her through the sheet, so all you see is the two of them wrestling underneath the sheet, and the next thing we know, she is dead and hanging and sprawling with a giant jack-o'-lantern lollipop shoved in her mouth and almost crucifix-style mutilated. Cut to credits. We immediately um, jolt into a almost panning of um, various graphic novel-esque depictions, of Halloween. Really well done. I really love the opening credits, and I really actually love the little pre vignette that was chronologically displaced at the beginning as mm-hmm. well. There's an old man neighbor, a grumpy old man, played by Brian Cox, somewhat of a curmudgeon, locked in, um, boozing next door, um, that gets annoyed with the noises, screams at people out in the street. He's just that grumpy old man. So I just want to throw that out that that's to some degree coupled with the couple story, and to some degree, coupled with Stephen, Principal, Wilkins' story. So two different stories that the old man kind of falls in between. Because you got to remember this is all going on in a kind of suburban night, small-town, Ohio atmosphere where there's a lot of crossovers, um, atmospherically and narratively. And then the other actor that um, really caught my um, attention that's actually in it as well um, that played um, Stephen or Principal Wilkins is... Um, oh, goodness, what's Dylan his Dylan Baker. Dylan Baker, thank you. From Happiness. Um, I was just – he's – as far as I'm concerned, he's only from one film. Only. (laughs) Because ever since I've seen that film, I can't ever see him as anything else it's hard to even if he's playing a good guy uh-huh. a lawyer a doctor in the back of my mind uh-huh. he's a pedophile lawyer a pedophile doctor <laughs> a pedophile good guy <laughs> and so, they definitely
0: play in this film they definitely play on your recognition of him from that from
1: that film, very much so uh-huh. we are intro in with him um he would be the serial killer um There is a heavyset boy that you will recognize from The Sandlot or from Bad Santa. Bad Santa for me more than Sandlot, but I remembered him from both. Um, Has a great film presence. Who shows up trick-or-treating. Obviously a very indulgent young boy that wants to eat as much candy as possible. Sits on the front steps with Principal Wilkins, who we don't know is the principal at this point yet. And they have a very awkward conversation that eventually turns into the principal giving him candy that appears to be drugged, him having a fit of vomiting that is uh, probably one of the better vomiting scenes I've seen outside of Stand By Me. <laughs> um, and, um, and then he um, basically coaxes the kid in, or pulls the kid inside once he gets sick and goes on to murder the kid. Um, and then the whole time, his child, a very sweet, innocent child from upstairs, not knowing what his dad's doing, keeps saying, dad, I'm ready to carve the jack-o'-lantern. Let's carve the jack-o'-lantern. His father's getting more and more annoyed when they finally get around to carving the jack-o'-lantern and dad, I want to make the eyes mean, dad, I want to make the eyes mean. When you see what their jack-o'-lantern is, it's the head of the chubby young boy that uh, his father killed so that his son is in on it the whole time, which you don't realize until they actually start carving the Uh jack-o'-lantern. Pretty, pretty brilliant. Um, story three. Really, really hot girls in <laughs> fairy tale costumes. <laughs> nice start already, right? Yeah. Um, they are all in fairy tale costumes, princesses and all the basic Cinderellas. And then there's um, Anna Paquin, who mm-hmm. all of you True Blood fans out there are quite familiar with um, or quite annoyed with by now, whichever <laughs> it may be. Um, who, um, much less annoying in this film, actually, um, plays very appropriate to the film. But Anna Paquin, who is the younger sister of one of the girls, she's also very attractive, of course, but she's the virgin of the bunch. So all these girls are getting dressed up, and obviously it is their tradition to go and have a party and find random guys to have some sort of, what seems to be some sort of sexual encounter with. So they're all talking about it, Anna Paquin being the younger sister and the virgin. Her older sister is very adamant about her having that moment that night. And her first, her, her first, yeah. exactly is how they reference it, and so they go out on the town, meet random guys, invite them to go partying with them in the woods. It all goes down, and it, there's a big party in the woods with the very attractive girls in very skimpy fairy tale outfits, and Anna Paquin who stays behind for a while but eventually joins them, and um, we finally realize that the first isn't a reference to sexuality, all of it. However, there are sexual elements involved in it, that it's a reference to the fact that all of these girls are werewolves. Yeah. So you do get to see the werewolves do a little gnawing on some of the boys that they had pulled in. Uh-huh. Story four, kids at the quarry, a young group of early teens. So post-junior high, early high school, eighth, ninth gradish, seventh, eighth, ninth gradish. ish mm-hmm. um, The one kind of dominating popular girl that is leading them into this old quarry that has an urban myth wrapped around it. The urban myth has to do with a bus of eight um, mentally challenged children who the parents had paid for the driver of this bus to off the children because they were tired of taking care of their mentally challenged children. This is the urban myth, the flashback that the girl is telling. Um, So she's bringing her friends to this quarry, which was the location of this urban myth. Um, The story goes that um, one of the kids breaks free, drives the bus into the big water pit at the bottom of the quarry, and they all die. Nobody knows what happens to the bus driver, um, but that supposedly all eight children um, were killed. And um, yes, and so that's that. Um, As that story unfolds, they are obviously going to the scariest place they know around this urban myth that they kind of believe, kind of don't believe. And some pretty shady things start going down. They also happen to have coaxed a girl named Rhonda to go with them, who they reference as a retard at first and then quickly correct it and know she's an idiot savant. Mm-hmm. So, um, so she's actually a um, perfectly intelligent, clever girl, just a, a little on the fringes of, yeah. of popularity sort of a and, misfit. and normalcy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And um, And so they bring her down with them as well. Um, I will just leave it with saying that she's the only one that walks out. So um, I think that gives us enough of the four stories. Um, They all do wrap around. um, Oh, I want to mention one thing. That there is one character that pops up throughout the entire thing, relatively ambiguous, relatively undefined, until later in the story as the stories start weaving together and you start realizing the relevance of this character. It is seemingly a um, child-sized body, Um, And if you look at the cover of the DVD, I'm just now realizing you will see this character um, with a almost um, like a a burlap hood Mm -hmm. over what seems to be a very round jack-o'-lantern-esque shaped head and um, wearing a onesie, Uh basically, a jumpsuit slash onesie. And pops up in random little scenes, not any action. You'll just see him across the street in various vignettes. And then as the story develops, becomes a much more proactive character. Yeah, yeah. Um, sort of
0: uh, button eyes sewn onto the burlap. Yes. Hood. Almost looks like a cross between a scarecrow. Sort of like a like a scarecrow and like a jack-o'-lantern, I
1: guess. Very much. And th- one of those, um, the way it was presented, you're immediately drawn into it with numerous comparisons from pop culture in the past. Like you kind of recognize this character as an amalgamation of different other Characters like this you have seen in the mm-hmm. past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the best I could tell, we'll get into this actually, but he's the one through character through mm-hmm. all of the vignettes. yeah. And then we'll get into how that yeah. was played. Um, they never move on.
0: say it in the film, but he actually does have a name. Okay. His name is Sam Hain. Sam. <laughs> so Sam, first name, last name, Hain, I guess. But, you know, put it together and you get Sam Hain or Sowen, the, you know, ancient druidic name of halloween
1: yes and um and and also a band (laughs) right (laughs) so um yeah so let's uh let's uh hand off to Colin with that all right to see what he has to um, teach me about this film
0: um you know i haven't watched this film since last halloween i guess and um i mean i've watched it you know several times since it came out um but (laughs) this is the kind of film where – and I know Todd has described this in the past with films that I've talked about that he has really personal connections with. But hearing Todd describe some of the things in this film, he did it very well. kind of gave me chills (laughs) and just made me really like want to go and watch this film again and just – like you can't see me right now but I have a giant (laughs) stupid grin on my face because I – just fucking love this movie. It it's pretty much the new classic. It's the new film that you break out, watch every every Halloween, you know, the one that you can pass on to your kids. Um it's such a it sits in between it it sits so nicely in between really serious um scary, you know, type Halloween horror movies and sort of lighter comedic kid-friendly stuff. It sort of plays the middle. Um there are parts of it that are really quite scary and harrowing and there are parts of it that are really funny. If you have any nostalgic attachment to Halloween at all, any of the iconography, the jack-o'-lanterns and the scarecrows and the and the ghouls and the goblins and the witches and, you know, the black cats and all of that shit, there uh, there is a pervading spirit of the autumnal fallen leaves, apple cider you know uh, you know so trick or treat so. candy it's just it is it is pervasive in this film so let's let's hear Todd's opening thoughts and then I'll talk a little more in depth about it
1: so just to follow through with what we were saying I love it that first of all that the director did it in vignettes that the vignettes were done on from a storytelling perspective and from a production value perspective extremely seamlessly the transitions were very smart and very smooth um you would see Characters from one of the vignettes in the background, unaddressed in one of the other vignettes. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of that, you're always being reminded that all of this is going on at the same time. So the parallel action was played in a way that you could very much understand where you were in the story. And they even took a couple of leaps forward and back um, a couple of times, which they would actually tell you earlier, later, Mm -hmm. I think twice that happened, and never once lost where you are in the chronology. So mad compliments on storytelling with four vignettes coming together um, that still kept a very consistent chronological um, forward momentum. Um, So props to the director on that. There's obviously some mainstream support for this film. Um, You look at the cast. um, Obviously, Anna Paquin was known well before True Blood. Um, Dylan Baker, very successful career, and we all know Brian Cox. It, it's obvious that it that it really was kind of billed to be, like Colin said, a crowd pleaser. And, um, and to get a wide release, it wasn't intended to be one of those obscure horror films that goes straight to DVD. Right. Um, and I'm really surprised that it didn't get more. Um, I think I'm going to touch on one more thing and then hand over a little bit more to Colin. Um, I have plenty to say about this film, actually, um narratively and otherwise but what i really want to touch on as usual um production value um this is an exquisitely shot film Mm -hmm. i mean really (laughs) exquisitely shot um i should have looked up the cinematographer um but mad credits to the director mad credits to the cinematographer extremely well thought out um a couple times shallow focus that was used in just a beautiful way there was a scene um during the old man curmudgeon um scene um Where he's laying on the floor in the background, completely shallow focused out with one small object in the extreme foreground, completely clear. And it was such a shallow depth of focus and just picture perfect. There was also a rack focus in there somewhere that I know I have a bunch of notes about because I started getting real giddy when I saw it. That was just spectacular. Maybe... God, can I even say this? one of the best rack focuses I had seen since um, Inglourious Bastards. Um, Through that rack focus, through the sheets at the beginning of Inglourious Bastards, that Uh "Ah," just makes me jump out of my seat and say, ah. It's so exciting. There are some
0: pretty nice racks in this
1: film. (laughs) Yeah, And there are some very nice racks in this film that, once again, playing to the horror genre, the Halloween (laughs) vibe, and and everything this film is supposed to be on a meta level um, certainly plays to that. So you do get to see all the... um, Princess fairy tale ladies changing out, not in full nudity. Yeah, you don't, it's not, I mean. But certainly enough to show props in that direction. I
0: think this film is rated R, but it doesn't have, you know, nudity in it. It's just has, you know, has a little bit of gore. I guess it's rated R because the subject matter little bit of gore, some yes. of the of the language and stuff, but really, it's it's
1: it's a soft R.
0: It's a soft R. It's very yes. much a, a kid friendly film. Really, I mean, in a in a,
1: <laughs> in a just world, this should be a PG thirteen. I think. I, I agree. I, I don't think I would go as far as to use the terms kid friendly, but but I think... I, I would show this. <laughs> I, would, I
0: would totally show this to my kids.
1: I actually can't wait to show this to my kids. <laughs> kind of like me, um, not being able to wait to. Uh, Yeah, show an Apocalypse Now or a uh, uh, (laughs) Last Temptation of Christ to my kids. But I still think I'll wait until they at least get into double digits. (laughs) I don't know about that. Anyway. But there were some really, really potent moments in this film Mm -hmm. um, that are actually extremely heartfelt um, that are worth exploring um, some of the social dynamics of. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly a bus full of eight mentally challenged children um, parents who are done dealing with these children, who hire the bus driver to kill these children, um, and then watching the bus go over the cliff in this um, backstory. At that point, um, th- there was no grin on my face yeah. by any means. I was very invested in that story mm-hmm. um, and in the social implications of that story. Um, and the heartache of that story nonetheless, and comparing it particularly that it was juxtaposed with these four very popular, healthy teenagers Mm -hmm. who are carrying along the other girl who's not accepted either. And so there's there's just a lot of potent themes being explored there. Oh, yeah, we can... I mean, we'll totally talk about that. I just kind of want to say across the board, I saw this as relatively flawless cinematography, and Mm -hmm. um, very impressive in that way.
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, Michael... Michael Doherty is a frequent collaborator of Brian Singer. This was I don't think it was his debut. oh no, it, it was his feature debut. He made a short before that sort of grew into this project. But um what I'm what is really interesting is that uh this winter there's a film coming out called Krampus, uh the, a Christmas horror film, which is also written and directed by um by Michael Doherty exploring mm-hmm. the legend you know the european legend of krampus the 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 demon of christmas as contrasted with saint nick the happy friendly present giver obviously he has a thing for holidays and the darker side of holidays and sort of you know the legendary and the the sort of cultural fabric all all of these myths and legend that are woven into the cultural fabric of holidays um if he does as good a job of capturing Christmas and, you know, sort of maybe the darker side of Christmas... As he does with Halloween in this film, then that's something to really, really, really be excited about. And hopefully, that one will get a cinema release. Mm-hmm. Uh, this film was made in 2007, like uh, like Todd said. Executive produced by Brian Singer, he put some money up. Uh, Warner Brothers studio film, you know, backing big names, stars, you know, um, it was
1: prepped for success in every it way. Was it was prepped appeared. for
0: success in every way. Brian
1: Singer as executive producer should be enough to get a right release.
0: right for whatever reason this film did not get the release it got shelved it made it in 2007 got put on the shelf a couple festival screenings i think fantastic fest in austin and then it got dumped on home video in 2009
1: this um I, never
0: had a mainstream cinema release at all this
1: confuses me um in this uh, right? situation <laughs> it really does usually when i see this happen to a film when i see a film get shelved or when i see a film um, get greenlit and then not carry into production, even mm-hmm. though it had already been greenlit. Yeah. Um, when I see um, a film with big names, big director, um, that gets held up for three to four years for release. Mm-hmm. One way or the other, I can usually figure out, within the context of how the studio system works, why it happened. I can't see how this one happened. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> like All the elements are there for right. release. Yeah. And it falls so nicely into the seasonal horror film genre mm-hmm. that it just seems like a package ready made for release.
0: In horror film terms, it would be called an anthology film. Uh, this is a tradition that goes back all the way to uh, uh, 1945 with a film called dead of night. It's an a English film usually talked about as the first horror anthology and actually a really, really good film that I recommend to anybody who's interested in this type of stuff to seek out um that kind of it kicked off the trend a little bit but really really horror anthologies kind of took off in the uh, in the 60s with uh Amicus uh the film studio in England that was kind of a competitor to Hammer they did films like Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror, to The Torture Garden, um, Asylum. A lot of these were, uh, were you know, directed by guys like Freddie Francis, written by people like Robert Block, uh, you know, had Burgess Meredith and Peter Cushing and you know big stars in them. Um, and they were very successful. And it makes sense as a format for horror films. I think one of the reasons that it makes sense is – I mean there are, there are anthology films of all different – all different genres. What's the but,
1: crisp definition of what you're referencing as an anthology? film?
0: Oh, uh, sorry. <laughs> oh no, it's okay. It's, um,
1: it's okay.
0: A one film with multiple stories.
1: Okay. That's um, what I figured. By yeah,
0: uh, and there there are some pretty good reasons why. Like I said, all genres there are anthology films in all genres, but horror is sort of a special case in that there it's it's a very well entrenched. Um, tradition almost to the point where
1: it's a genre unto itself, the horror anthology. I've also n- noticed that it tends to work better in horror than mm-hmm. it does. It. I, I've seen anthology films in other genres mm-hmm. that don't play quite as well,
0: right? Or right, that are, right.
1: seem to be a little more challenging, yeah. to make those transitions. Right.
0: I think there are a few reasons why it's why it works in horror. One of which is a lot of horror films tend to be lower budgeted. And with an anthology film, you can have bigger stars. And you don't have to pay them so much because they're only working one or two
1: days. It also helps enormously with scheduling with big stars. Scheduling with big stars, As yeah. well as continuity. You uh-huh. can shoot one here, take a month, shoot another. Right. There's a lot of things that could play to.
0: Right. So just logistically in terms of money and, and time, it's easier to do However, Um, this
1: was not particularly a low-budget film. No, it wasn't. I I don't know what the budget was. I just know that from watching the film. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. I think another reason that horror anthologies work is that horror stories can often often work best in a shorter format. Mm -hmm. There's, like, sort of, like, it's almost like, you know, set up payoff punchline, (laughs) you know, (laughs) almost like... uh, Urban legends, you know, we go back to this whole tradition of, you know, this oral tradition, urban legends, um, you know, folklore, ghost stories, scary stories to tell in the dark, stuff that you, you know, campfire tales and those sort of things. Those don't go on for a long time. They're
1: usually pretty short. No gratuitous exposition in this film. And yet Uh, there's a lot going on.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The film doesn't fuck around. Really great
1: show, Don't Tell.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So... and. I think tied into that kind of wham, bam, thank you, ma'am kind of storytelling is the influence of comic books. There is another big reason why why horror anthology is a genre unto itself is because of the horror comics of the 50s and 60s, the old EC comics, the Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror, Haunt of Fear, and... Their successors, which was pretty much the exact same format from the 60s, the Warren publications, Creepy and Eerie, which I've actually been reading a lot of lately. And there's good stuff in there. This film definitely harkens back to the EC comics, big, you that. bold, you know, and that's a big reason why. I mean, you can tell from the um, the opening credits, like you said, they're done in a comic book style. The EC style of storytelling was a very short story, like pretty simple mechanics um with usually some sort of surprise some kind of ironic twist some sort of you know bad guy gets his comeuppance at the end sort of thing and the the stories in this when you break them down they they pretty much all have some sort of twist like that with the way it's edited you know the stories are all sort of understood to be happening more or less at the same time
1: It's parallel action and interwoven vignettes. Right. They don't begin
0: and end uh, self-containedly. Also, the way it's told Mm -hmm. non-linearly, it actually has more in common with stuff like Pulp Fiction, stuff like Iñárritu's films. Absolutely. And also, you know, with a nice tie-in to the next film, we're going to be talking about (laughs) another Tom Waits vehicle, (laughs) um, Robert Altman's Shortcuts. Halloween, the holiday is What? Drives the story. It's what moves the story forward. It's what it's what sort of all the themes are are centered around. And really, Sam. I mean, his name is Sam Hain. That character is pretty much a personification of the a holiday. Halloween. So his character basically shows up every time that somebody breaks one of the Halloween rules. In, in in the start, the Leslie Bibb character. The big conversation in the beginning is whether to leave the jack o' lantern lit. And the boyfriend's like, I don't know why. I don't see them as a married couple. I'm just going to call them. Long boyfriend, girlfriend. I'm I mean. just going to call them the boyfriend. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's because the institution of marriage is oppressive. So she goes to blow out the jack-o'-lantern, and he says, no, we need to leave it lit. She says, why? He says, because that's what you do. That's the tradition. And, and she's like, nah, fuck that. I'm blowing it out. And she blows yeah. it out, and then she gets killed. Yes. The fat kid, even though he does have a name, his name is Charlie. This film makes use of archetypes and cultural shorthand and for all intents and purposes he is the fat kid. We all know who the fat kid is in films like this. He is the fat kid. He's wearing <laughs> he's wearing the shirt which I love which says this is my costume. <laughs> when we first see him he's knocking over jack o lanterns he's like he's he's walking down the street smashing every jack o lantern he sees so he's already broken two cardinal rules of halloween he he's the kid that goes up to you know the bucket that says you know uh Take just one, and he empties the entire thing uh, into his bag, which we've all done, right?
1: Right. <laughs> so he's Still breaking the rules, though.
0: Right. He he's breaking many rules of Halloween, and then of course there's the punchline after um, after uh, Principal Wilkins poisons him. You
1: know, he says, "Oh, you broke one of the rules. Uh-huh. Always check your candy." I've brought up before that almost inevitably in any sort of traditional narrative film, which includes most of the films that most of us watch. Um, that somewhere around the 10 to 20 minute mark, usually actually right at the 12 to 15 minute mark, uh-huh. you will inevitably have a character in some sort of subtle way tell you the underlying premise of the film. Right. Principal Wilkins says, these traditions were started to protect us, but nowadays nobody cares. Mm-hmm. So and yep. it actually kind of plays to the narrative and the underlying premise. But I think we could take that. Don't have time to. But we could take that pretty deep in evaluating what the real intention of this film was, what it's actually saying. Yeah,
0: I do want to talk a little bit more thematically about this film. And like I said, it really is saying something about society. Like the town that this takes place in is one of those – like Todd said, we all know this sort of town. But this is that kind of town on steroids. This is like <laughs> the archetypical version. And and that's another another reason why I love this film, same reason that I love the Scream films, you know, Rest in Peace, Wes Craven, is because they depict a world in which everybody loves horror movies and talks Uh, about horror movies all the time one of the things i love about this film is the town where everybody except for two characters like literally two people in the entire film everybody takes halloween super seriously plans for it all year Rhonda makes like a hundred jack-o'-lanterns herself and puts them in the yard all different designs there's this news report where like they show downtown and like basically downtown of this Giant small Halloween town party. is a huge Halloween party. Everybody's in costume. It's the
1: Halloween town.
0: Yeah, it is the Halloween town. And yes. um but it's I think the film is saying something about society there, which is like, you know, we're so we're so scattered, like we're so diffuse now in society that there are things that could bring us together, like celebration of this holiday, like I said before it's about the misfits, the outsiders, the morbid, the ghoulish, you know the things that don't really get paid attention to in the rest of the year. These are things that could bring us together, and yet, like right. Wilkins said, nowadays nobody cares and almost the kind of scattershot fragmented way this is filmed is almost like a reflection of that it's one of those how I always like to you know see the the ways that form follows function in films like uh it's all this separation you know essentially people not respecting tradition not respecting sort of these these commonalities in the human family, that's what creates this division, this fragmentation of society. All these different stories happening at the same time in different places. And a lot of it is miscommunication that drives the film. Like, everybody's sort of living their own little worlds and nobody's really part of this human family. Same thing with the prank they play on Rhonda. Like you said, there's the same thing that the parents of the of the mentally challenged kids did to them is essentially what the popular kids are doing to Rhonda. very much it's like you're not part of us you're you're separate from us and And something you
1: were touching on a lot there that theme of apathy yeah that 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 theme of this is happening to my neighbor and Mm -hmm. i'm simply not going to pay attention right because the same way when in the very opening shot this is laid down before the credits ever rolled with the graphic novel stuff and all that Uh that you see the emma character Hearing trouble over in the old man's house, right. and like you can hear the sound that there's like trouble. Remember, there was some kind of brewing trouble to where she could hear it or he could hear it, but that you knew there's something awry going on, and they just keep moving on through their actions. Like that's right. not that's not important to me. That's not part of my world. That's my next door neighbor. Right. That's their world, which I think speaks enormously of of, of something um, that Colin just touched on. That um that plagues particularly Western culture, but that plagues most societies in general.
0: Everybody in this film, even if they're not wearing a costume, everybody is is, is in disguise. <laughs> there's what you see. There's what a person chooses to portray to the world, and there's what actually exists underneath. The principal is a mild-mannered, upstanding citizen on the outside underneath he is a bo- he's a monster he's a serial killer and actually when he puts on the costume when he puts on the halloween costume it's actually clo- a closer representation of what he is inside when he goes out in the
1: vampire absolutely outfit and with we could fangs. probably carry that Motif over to a few of the other characters as all, well. All of all the other characters.
0: The other well, characters. I mean, the werewolves, for instance, is very clear. They are hot chicks on the outside. Yes. But really, inside, when they let their true nature out, they are werewolves. Right. You know, they're tearing people apart. And it's deceptive, you know, because they're costuming their Halloween. Co- There's layers of disguise here. There's the sexual w-
1: lore to the right. whatever.
0: Right. Uh, absolutely. Right. And so then the kids. When you get to the story of the kids, there's the bitch, Macy, who and is... what a bitch she is. She's such a bitch, right? <laughs> Macy, like, immediately the, you relate right. her
1: to that girl in junior high. Uh-huh. Like you still haven't quite gotten over yeah, your like resentment she, towards. <laughs> she is
0: the cute, blonde, white chick in junior high who is, like, obviously all the guys want to get with mm-hmm. and is very popular and very pretty. But underneath, she is a complete bitch, and she is the, the spearhead. Like She's the one who comes up with the prank, and even after the rest of the kids see how, how traumatized Rhonda has been by this prank, she's still the one who's like, ah, fuck it. We did a good job. Yeah. And what is she – And wants to keep going with it. Right. And wants to keep going with it. And what is her costume – she's an angel (laughs) of course she's wearing an angel outfit with a with a blank beautiful white mask and white feathery wings and uh the leslie bibb character who doesn't respect halloween what is she dressed up as She's a robot. Yep. She just follows her, her programming. Yes. She does what she's programmed to do and obeys.
1: And even playing you know, into that, I got to clean up for mom's impression tomorrow. Right. And right. my boyfriend who does nothing but play video games <laughs> and waste time all the time. Right, and, right, right. Yes.
0: Yep. She's a robot. She's a, a societal drone. You yeah. Know? And yeah. Uh, even, even Mr. Krieg, you know, even the crotchety old man, he presents this – this sort of stoic hate the world attitude but really it's 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 to mask a self-loathing and extreme guilt that he's feeling another uh place where it plays in in the flashback really, really eerie scene with all the kids, the eight mentally challenged kids on the school bus. All the kids are in monster costumes. Very traditional old school like Dracula Frankenstein, yes. you know, mummy type monster costumes. It's like this is how this very traditional community sees these kids. Absolutely. Who have are troubled. They have problems, but their parents just see them as monsters. And- One of the things I love about Halloween is that it is It's a remnant, and that's what I think fascinates Michael Doherty too, given that his next project is this Krampus film, is that it's a relic, a remnant of pre-Christian observance of this really kind of dark, interesting kind of subject matter that retains some of its... It's original character and flavor just in an Americanized kind of packaged mainstreamified way. That dichotomy is it goes hand in hand with the themes we were talking about of of human connection versus human separation uh, in this film. So I think it all it all ties up really, really neatly together. And, um, you know. Has some fun, some laughs, and some thrills and spills and chills along the way, and I, I you know, I think it's you know, for the kind of film this is. I think it's pretty perfect. So that's all I have to say. I think I will. Uh, I'll let Todd go into his last words.
1: Well, I'm sure you guys have picked up on by now that um, there's so many different elements that bothered me about this film. Um, kidding. Um, I um, I watched this film this morning um, with a very um sleep-deprived, but very clear eyes um, before um, recording. Um, I enjoyed every single second of this film. Every single second, from the beginning till the end. Um, I quit taking notes. I quit nitpicking about 20 minutes in. <laughs> um, that is always my um, biggest sign that uh, that a film has got me. Um, I started paying attention to what he the filmmakers wanted me to pay attention to, as opposed to what I wanted to pay attention to mm-hmm. so a huge compliment to the film um I can't say enough about the production value across the board um once again, even the smaller things that so many times are forgotten um that were just done to a perfect tee. um yeah, um so on a production level, on a narrative level um and but what really really got me is what we have been talking about as far as the underlying premise that this film had something to say Mm. so that if I can sit back and literally be just thoroughly entertained by the front narrative and at the same time constantly feel this depth and this um pulling to um contemplate it um on a slightly um deeper level um then, then you're talking my game um huge huge highbrow and um it's probably currently um in contention for um the best film that Colin has given me
0: oh <laughs> trick or treat highbrow high as, as, high as it deserves and uh happy halloween everybody happy halloween go see crimson peak
1: during the spookiest time of the year there are a few guidelines all ghosts and goblins should follow Always stay on sidewalks, never go to a stranger's house, and never go out alone. (laughs) things.
0: Room free. All right. So, uh for our second film of the evening, uh Todd asked me to watch 1986's Down by Law directed by Jim Jarmusch. Indeed. Um so this is a film that opens with tracking shots of the, let's say, seedier parts of New Orleans. We are then introduced to our main characters. Uh, The first that we meet is Jack, and we meet him. He's in bed with a woman. We very shortly thereafter learn that jack is a pimp and this woman is one of his prostitutes um we find out that jack is at least when you know when the woman wakes up and is talking to him we find out that at least from her perspective he's not a very good pimp he she's sort of just berating him for being kind of a second-rate pimp and letting everybody take advantage of him and um But he has a very cool demeanor, sort of very kind of above-it-all kind of posture. Um, Jack is portrayed by John Lurie, I should say.
1: Um, Should bring up that he wasn't acting there?
0: (laughs) So an acquaintance of his named Gig comes to see him, and he says, Listen, Jack, I have got – I know you hate me. I know you don't trust me because of some stuff that happened between us in the past, but I want to make it up to you. I've got a beautiful 19-year-old white girl who is looking for a pimp, and um, I want you to come look at her, and uh, if you like her, then you can be her pimp, and uh, you know, it will be a mutually beneficial arrangement. Initially skeptical, um, Jack eventually decides to go and look at the girl. He goes into the hotel room where the girl is, where he is told the girl is, and um, it turns out to be a setup. The girl is 12, (laughs) 11, something like that. The cops bust in. The light goes on. You see the age of the girl, and uh, Jack has just gotten through explaining how he'll help he will turn her out right he'll be a good pimp and she'll make a lot of money under his tutelage um jack gets arrested hauled off to the pokey all the time protesting that he has been set up uh the other of the main characters that we meet in the first part of the film is a fellow named zach who is a radio dj (laughs) who has just gotten fired, I believe, it's not explicitly stated, but I think it's that he's just gotten fired from his radio, his latest uh, DJ gig in New Orleans on WYLD. His girlfriend, or woman that he's living with, has had enough of his, um, his lowlife ways, and she is in the When we first meet Zach, she is in the process of kicking him out and throwing all of his shit out into the street, including his record collection, which caused me a little pang of anxiety. (laughs) Um, So she throws him out. He goes and these two segments, the one I just discussed with Jack and this one are intercut, by the way. Um, He goes and basically gets drunk. He doesn't have a place to live anymore. He's unemployed, so he kind of just sits out on the street and gets drunk and uh, is singing to himself. Um, along comes a acquaintance of his who says, Hey, I've got a proposition for you, a way to make some easy money. I know you don't trust me because of some things that happened to us in the past, but I want to make it up to you with... Is this sounding familiar? (laughs) So he says, all I need you to do is take this car and drive it from one end of town to the other and park it and leave it. And I'll give you a thousand dollars to do that. Zach, initially skeptical, uh, decides he needs the money and he decides to go ahead and do it. Um, He's driving along. He gets pulled over by the cops um, the cops uh, they get him out of the car they are are questioning him he says I don't um, he says the, it's my car there's nothing wrong here um, the cops open the trunk they find a dead body in the trunk um, at which point Zach starts to say I've been set up They they handcuff him and they haul him off to the pokey all the while Zach is protesting that he's been set up. Um, and so the next, um, section of the film, that's like the first 20 minutes or so of the film. The next, uh, section of the film takes place in the jail where Jack and Zach, are wind up in the same cell. Um, they are bunkmates, and they are hostile toward each other. Uh, they never really become very close, but eventually they, they kind of soften toward each other, and they start to get along a little better. And then a third element is introduced. This is a man who we saw briefly earlier who has a strange little encounter with Zack uh, right before he gets arrested. Um, whose name is Roberto, an Italian uh, tourist. What's he go about, though? He goes by Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Italian tourist who is portrayed, or immigrant, it's kind of hard to tell. He doesn't speak very good English. In fact, when we first meet him, he speaks almost no English. Um, he is portrayed by Roberto Benigni. Um.
1: Who really didn't speak very good English. Who
0: really didn't speak very good English. And so the three of these, and so these are our three central characters, and we just kind of hang out with them for a while in the jail, getting to know each other, getting in fights, sort of making fun of each other, hanging out, just being dudes. And then at some point, uh, Bob figures out a way to escape. And the other two, he invites the other two to escape along with him, and they do. They escape from the jail or prison. This is one thing that I want to talk about later. I, I, I don't know whether to call it a jail or a prison, but we'll <laughs> talk about that in a minute. Uh, they escape. They and they escape into the bayou. Um, this they were all arrested in Louisiana but they were put in the parish prison which is obviously out in out in the rural part i mean i'm sorry i say louisiana they were arrested in new orleans the city they're put in the parish prison which is obviously a little rural like outside of the of the city and what they escape into is just wilderness so they're in the bayou they don't know where to go they just sort of I I don't know. They just sort of wander around in the swamp for a while. They find a house with a boat. They, they try to, uh, they try to get back to civilization using the boat. The boat sinks. They wander around in the Bayou a little more. They come to a road. Uh, they walk down the road. They find a little cafe restaurant, something, um, that is uh, owned by another Italian immigrant uh, who is a a nice young lady uh, who helps them out and this is where the three characters diverge and they end up going their separate ways and that's your film. That is as bare bones a plot synopsis as I feel like uh, giving at this moment. That, there um, is not much plot in this film.
1: Yes, <laughs> from the beginning as a filmmaker, Jim Jarmusch adamantly um, is a narrative deconstructionist, would be the best way to put it, or flagrantly um, um, unabiding to narrative structure. Um I think, in his own words, he would probably say this. I certainly would say this, and will, that the story is told in between the cuts. Mm-hmm. That he gives you the bare bones setup, and the rest of the story is what you don't see. Um, he also is fascinated in things that um, play against telling a traditional linear narrative. Um, so his own personal intrigues play into this narrative style that has continued throughout his entire career um and with a few exceptions progressed at a relatively natural rate of how little narrative his films include um eh, it's always been pretty thin but by the time you get to some of his later films um with the exception of broken flowers i mean even arguably that um that that it can be argued that there's almost no narrative anymore and that it's more of an exploration of character um, or an exploration of culture or, even better yet, an exploration of cultures coming together and the characters that represent those cultures. Um, These are all traditional fascinations of Jim Jarmusch. Um, Cultural relativity, um, frequently in his films. um, um, Language barriers, frequently in his films. Um... Alienation individuals, alienated um, from society and from one another, frequently in Jim Jarmusch films, almost always actually um, feeling a slightly displaced. Um, all of these things feed back into the idea mm. that an auteur makes the same film over and over again. And that Jim Jarmusch, in my eyes, is the epitome of an American independent auteur. Um, and one that makes films that are actually absurdly personal on some levels. However, he's a very, very intellectual man that is somewhat removed from reality himself or say not reality, perhaps feels somewhat removed and on the fringes or displaced in time, as he has said that I feel displaced in time and in um, atmosphere, um, And so a lot of this is him expressing his own um, subjective experience of reality that I think um, has struck a note with quite a few people, hence why he's gotten to make films for this long. Mm. Um, And so all of these things cross over all Jim Jarmusch films. Um, So that's thematically. Um, So let's move on to a couple of things that cross over all Jim Jarmusch films production-wise and stylistically. Um, This film was shot in black and white, which he certainly leans towards black and white, loves high contrast and if anything even once he switches to color um, later in his career typically uses muted coloring if he doesn't use muted coloring it's usually a relatively direct and simple color palette um and always very very intentional if there is color it was because he put color there and wanted color there he starts off with a black and white palette almost always Um, A few other things, um, and a lot of this has, some of this has to go with his collaboration um, with a longtime cinematographical collaborator, um, Robbie Mueller, I think is how you say it, Um, but those long, slow, perfectly 90-degree tracking shots. Staple of Jim Jarmusch and Robbie Mueller's collaboration. I love them every time I see it, just going down a street of row houses or going down a street of buildings or whatever it may be. And him also typically making the geographical location to some degree a character like he did with New Orleans and the Bayou in this film. Mm -hmm. Um, The intrigue is typically found in the interaction of, of characters from realities experiences or cultures that have no earthly business being put together mm-hmm. and then let's see what happens um hence colon pausing and saying and for a while these men wander through the bayou or for a while they chat in the prison cell or for and so yeah. there really aren't narrative beats
0: there. right yeah there's a lot of this film a lot of stretches of this film that can be summed up as for a while they just kind of hang out right
1: <laughs> however I would adamantly say a lot more is going on than that. Oh, sure, sure. But narratively, he's absolutely right. <laughs> very easy for the words postmodernism to come out of my mouth when mm-hmm. I talk about him. Right. Um, in a different way than Tarantino, but very much referencing the same kind of thing, um, taking a lot of elements from past genres, past art, and putting them together. I personally, theoretically, will track this to the fact that his first and foremost aspiration while well, at Columbia University, before going to film school, was to be a poet. I think what we are seeing is a cinematic representation of the poetry that the man would have written had he never gone to film school. And I'll pass it on to Colin from there.
0: Hmm. Nice, uh, nice setup. Yeah, thanks. Of all the filmmakers that Todd has assigned me, interestingly, this is the one I'm most familiar with. I've actually seen three Jim Jarmusch films um, prior to viewing this, so this will be my fourth. The ones that I've seen before are Dead Man, the aforementioned Ghost Dog, and the aforementioned Broken Flowers. Um, So I kind of already had an idea of his style. But those three films I just mentioned are all very, very different. Absolutely. Um, I mean, like you can say that auteurs make the same film over and over again, which is true. Uh, But those three films, I think... I mean, from what I've seen of Jim Jarmusch, you know, uh, including this one that I just watched, um, those three films are probably about as different as Jarmusch films get, from what I can tell.
1: And I'd say Ghost um, Dog and Broken Flowers, in particular, as much of, um, or as far. Straying from his consistent style as any of the films. Dead Man, I actually mm-hmm. wouldn't say that, but I think it falls yeah. into style with his earlier works. Of the,
0: ones, of the ones that I have seen, I would say that this, down by law, was probably closest to Dead Man. Yes. Um, aesthetically and sort of philosophically. Right. Um, and uh, so... Um, I was aware going in that Jim Jarmusch films kind of tend to be generally plotless, meandering. Mm-hmm. They sort of wander around. They sort of – you think they're going to go somewhere and then they kind of take a different direction and maybe they end up going back in the direction you thought they did, but maybe they don't. Kind of like life. Yeah, yeah, sort of like life. Yeah. So, you know, this I wasn't surprised by that element in this film. And if anything, I was actually surprised by how structurally consistent this film was and actually had more narrative cohesion than I expected
1: going that in. That makes me happy because I see that very adamantly when he, get, when he gets commented on as a narrative deconstructionist in a negative way uh-huh. because I do see him as a deconstructionist, but I don't see him as being without narrative or without narrative beats.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, this film had a definite beginning. It had a definite middle. It had a definite <laughs> end. It ended where it was supposed to. And mm-hmm. I think in the way it was supposed to, I couldn't think of a of a, a a more appropriate way for this film to end than the way it did. So, you know, in that sense, it wasn't... I didn't get the twists and turns that I expected, not plot-wise, but sort of... Um, conceptually you know it was it seemed uh, the whole thing seemed pretty pretty straightforward so I mean you know let's talk about style uh, for a minute Um, so as Todd mentioned earlier this film is in black and white it's in very high contrast very I guess the adjective that is used most often is stark (laughs) Uh, black and white Um, and Reminiscent of Dead Man. Um,
1: There's a little neo noir in
0: there. Well, that yeah, that's what I was gonna. That's what I was just about to say. It, I think it is very, very indebted. Not just the black and white and the high contrast, but also the staging of the whole thing is very, very indebted to noir. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's all shot on location. There are no sets, but. Everything looks stagey. He's shot he has shot real locations as if they were sets, somehow making them look like sets, particularly in the early part with the New Orleans streets which are which are bizarrely empty. It's really interesting because like all of those set bound stage shot noir films he makes this look like that yes it's almost like he it looks like he built a new orleans street corner on a sound stage mm-hmm. but really it's just a new Orleans street corner. Right. The fact that it's all empty is, is kind of bizarre that but, lends itself to, you know, I mean, you go to new Orleans, it's a busy city. Also, very even in, even in
1: the middle of the night, also very consistent throughout all Jim Jarmusch films. Oh, emptiness. You'll see a lot of <laughs> empty space where uh-huh. there should be extras and characters. Right. And that right. It's, right. That it's just the people he's wanting you to focus on. Yeah.
0: So it seems interesting. and It's, it, it's kind of Bertolt Brecht kind of, you know, um, artifice and that's one thing that that was kind of my my gateway into the aesthetic of this film was how artificial it is I mean the very fact that you're shooting in black and white you can talk about gritty realism all you want but I mean the world is not black and white we see the world in color so there's an automatic lens of artifice and a separation from the real world that happens when when you shoot something in black and white and it kind of makes this film a little bit Mm dreamlike you know jarmusch is not talked about when you talk about films you know feeling dreamlike, you know usually people talk about lynch Mm -hmm. um cocteau you know there's a lot of places a lot of a lot of film yes yeah yeah Fellini. there's a lot of filmmakers you go to when you talk about shooting a film like a dream before you get to jarmusch he's not thrown into that mix but at least from what i've seen particularly this in dead man it really does feel like there's that dream logic you know things happen that don't really make a lot of sense i mean you know if you if you if you try to interpret not interpret if you try to square this film up with reality and what we know of the world there's tons of holes in it like yeah. the film doesn't make any sense at all there's um I couldn't figure out if any of these men had been to trial yet. (laughs) If they were just being held awaiting trial. I mean, like you see, um, Tom Waits or Zach is marking off the days on the wall, and as the film goes on, or the part of the film that gets into the, you know, into the. Or a part of the film that takes place in the jail, as the film goes on, like the you get more and more days are marked off on the wall. And I stopped, you know, I looked and counted them one time, and like they've been in there for the better part of a year. And which is not to say that you can't be in jail that long awaiting trial, but I could never figure out if these men had been sentenced, if they were just in a holding cell there were never there was never any talk of trials or of seeing their lawyers there was
1: never now in film time how long did that year feel to you watching as a viewer i
0: uh, it felt very it felt like it, it was all happening in one week it yeah. was extremely compressed yeah. um you didn't get the sense that you had lived through this year in the slammer with these characters a little, you were just sort of dipping in and <laughs> visiting them yeah. um so that didn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> when they get out, they're wandering. It and need to make sense. It didn't. Well, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> that's what I'm driving at. When they get you – know, when they escape – they're wandering around in the bayou for what seems like days, but there's never... They talk about being hungry, but there's never any talk of, like, how these men are staying hydrated. <laughs> like, you know, they're... Is where they're getting their fresh drinking water from. Are they drinking swamp water? Are, you know... That's never addressed. Finally, when they get to the road... They're like wearing this clothing that said – they're wearing these shirts that say Orleans Parish Prison on the back and the pants say Orleans Parish Prison on them. And there's never any talk of like, well, if somebody comes along, they're going to they're gonna tell that we've escaped from the joint because we're in our jail clothes. Maybe we should try to like obscure the fact that we broke out of jail. There's never any yeah. discussion of that. And when they get to the restaurant with the lady, she never asks – why are you in prison <laughs> outfits? Like, the plausibility factor in this film is extremely, extremely, extremely low. <laughs> and so that – I was keyed into that and prepared for that, that type of stuff. It didn't bother me like it would in a film that was attempting to be realistic. So, yeah, like genre-wise, there was definitely a lot of film noir. There was also a lot of southern gothic. Mm-hmm. Um it was very easy for me to get into this film culturally speaking because i mean also i've lived in new orleans i know sort of am a little familiar with the culture and sort of the pace of life in louisiana that this film kind of it has a it has a rhythm it has has kind of a languid um rhythm and feel to it that 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 sort of feels like louisiana life so okay when this film opens and the first thing, I think, even before you see anything, you hear the first notes of "Jockey Full of Bourbon" by Tom Waits. Yes. <laughs> Within a second of this film opening, I was like, "I'm gonna dig this." Um, but you know, uh, it—I I would say it was a challenging watch all all through. And yeah, you know, like you said, John Lurie does the rest of the music. Um, it was a challenging watch all the way through, but. Really, for a lot of reasons, because the style was immediately uh, familiar to me, because I picked up on what he was trying to do with the sort of dream logic and the languor of a of a Louisiana summer day, mm-hmm. um, and you know, um, and, and because of the narrative consistency, cohesion, it wasn't as challenging a watch for me as I. Had anticipated.
1: When I watched this one, I just remember giggling so hard, particularly at like the cafe scene with them in their prison garb. Right. And the whole time just being like, "Really? Yeah. Really?" In every film, the first scene you see, you have to see this scene. I know this scene exists. You got to pull the clothes off the clothesline, or dig right. the clothes out from behind the farmer's house, yeah, yeah, or yeah, yeah. you got to be in some goofy clothes you're not supposed to be wearing. You uh-huh. know, a Panama Jack shirt with some overalls. Right, or, right, right. You know, right. And it never happens. It he doesn't bother. Yeah. Right. he yeah. doesn't bother. Clothing. Yeah. He just doesn't bother. He's just like, eh, ah, so be it. And what he's basically... And with that, Jarmusch is almost challenging your suspension of disbelief. You're um,
0: absolutely right. Yeah, there are things he's in this daring film... you not to like his film. Right. There are things in this film that any other film would address that yes. this film is, is almost defiant about not addressing. To
1: me, what this film was probably about to Jarmusch more than anything else was if I put these three characters... In a room together, what happens? Right, and then everything spawned off of that. Right, and then okay, yeah. so what room can I put them in? Ooh, a prison cell. That's yeah. a room they can't get out of. Yeah. Oh, and then after that, how can it be a slow meandering open spance of space <laughs> that still feels like a room? Right. Ooh, the meandering bayou.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, I because think how
1: Jarmusch conceptualizes. Well, films, yeah, right, because they know? can't.
0: They, they have to stay together. At one point, they try to get away. Right. They try to go their separate ways, and they all but if, meet
1: back up again. But if Zach and Jack don't stay together, you have no ending. Right, right. And yeah, you actually exactly. don't have anything. Because well,
0: nobody knows where they're going. And oh, when they get in the boat, they start to think they're going in circles. And Zach yes. is like, where' are going in circles. And Jack's like, oh, I don't know. I don't think so. And then the boat starts <laughs> to sink. And, so nobody really – it's like in the film – You know, the characters are the film in that. They don't know where they're going. They don't yes. know which way – I guess arguably the two biggest parts in this film are played by non-actors. John Lurie, from what I can tell, pretty much plays John Lurie in this film. Uh, Tom Waits pretty much plays Tom Waits, which is fine because they are who they are and they are presences. They are great. You know, you want to watch them. You want to see what they're going to do. But really, (laughs) really, I... I mean, for me, Benini
1: makes this film. But everything else is flat. He He's is the only thing that's not flat. I
0: <laughs> so I didn't really know Benini other than I've never seen Life Is Beautiful. I only know him for a crazy Oscar acceptance. <laughs> moment a super way like jumping up on the seats and screaming <laughs> i love you all right accepting his oscar <laughs> this is literally the only thing of roberto benini that i know um in this film he is every every word that comes out of his mouth made me laugh out loud uh,
1: javier <laughs> always says that he he feels like um that Almost like a man with no country, but that he doesn't relate to American culture, that he uh-huh. always feels like he's looking at American culture from the outside, that's yeah. why he is so attracted to alternative cultures. Uh-huh. and um, makes sense. And So I think that kind of plays into the, the perspective of the Benini character as well yeah. to yeah. some degree.
0: So the way that Benini's character, the reason he's locked up, is that he' the only guilty one.: He killed somebody. He killed a guy with a pool ball, with an eight ball, (laughs) because he was playing cards and he was cheating. (laughs) I am good cheater.
1: (laughs) He's a hustler.
0: (laughs) Yeah. He was cheating and they figured out he was cheating. He doesn't know how because he's a good cheater. (laughs) And they chased him out of the room into a room where there was a pool table and they started throwing the balls at him. And... If you throw ball against me, I throw ball against you.
1: <laughs> You're doing a great impression.
0: <laughs> so he picked up the eight ball, threw it at the guy that was throwing the balls against him, and hit him on the head with him and killed him. Ta! Dead.
1: I just love it loving the three characters the pimp, the kind of the just kind down of, and out disc yeah, jockey yeah. bum and then Benini that Benini's the only one that was actually guilty <laughs> right, right yeah, yeah no.
0: one thing we didn't really talk about is this film is every scene every scene is pretty much a
1: single shot yes
0: more or less is done in one long time. and once
1: again consistent throughout Jarmusch's film mm-hmm. like if yeah. he doesn't have to cut he doesn't right yeah. like he keeps the camera on them as long as he possibly can yeah or keeps the camera in one space as long as he possibly can
0: and he moves the camera a lot like Todd said those 90 degree tracking shots
1: but speaking of along the
0: this. streets along in inside the jailhouse along the bayou like His motions
1: are always very transparent, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, once again, that straight-on tracking shot, or that, you know, like, you know it's a dolly tracking straight down the street at this pace. There's no of this, I'm trying to hide what I'm doing here.
0: Right, right. It's never, yeah, there's never the philosophy of when you move the camera, the audience shouldn't realize that you're moving the camera. Right. It should feel natural. No, you always know when he's moving the camera. But he
1: does adamantly abide by... I only move the camera when I have a reason to. Right, yeah. Which I love.
0: Yeah. Uh, So all of that, you know, all of that combines to make, you know, I would say this is, it's an interesting film because it, it tries to be, it uses extreme artifice to attempt to get at a more sort of deeper realism. It's, Which is, I'm portraying life, and a lot of times life is just three dudes sitting around talking.
1: Yes. The idea of just three guys sitting around in this atmosphere, being put into this atmosphere against their will, and then watching what may happen in this chemistry is absurdly realist as far as the idea of it. Yeah, But right. the presentation of it is not at all.
0: And I'm, 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 and, I'm trying to reconcile those two. I'm wondering exactly. why he... He, he decided to shoot something that should feel so realistic in such an artificial way.
1: I think if he shot this in a complete, minus Jarmuschian stylistic touches, if he shot this same exact script in a purely realist fashion, a personian realist fashion, or an Ozu realist fashion, I think you would have ended up with the most excruciatingly boring film of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong um because there's certainly intrigue to be found simply once again in what his focus was which is the interaction between these characters that have no business being together hmm. um the cultural divides the 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 experiential divides on and on and on and um but yet yeah i think that stylistic touch that ends up planting the dreamlike weave that you were talking about i think is what fills out the body of his films. Mm -hmm. This film is very true to Jarmusch. It's very true to his entire filmography, um, particularly true to the first half of his career through Dead Man. And then past that, he's stretched his wings a little in different directions. Mm -hmm. Um, But still pretty consistent Jarmusch. Um, I also want to point out something that we haven't discussed that's actually outside of the internal world of the film, which is what Jarmusch, this film... And that period of time was for cinema versus where we are today. That I think if Jarmusch were to go with the exact same basic approach to his career, step by step, to making films today, that he might have gotten one film made, might have gotten some critical acclaim on the festival circuit, and we probably never would have heard from him again. Um, Which to me is a very sad prospect and a massive statement on um, the strength of the studio hold today on American cinema. Now this usually works in rhythm and this usually works in back and forth to where you get a little new way of popping in every time the studios start getting frantic and start getting scared that it's not working anymore. Um, But right now the studios are in a position that they're probably, it's hard for me to use the word good, doing as good of a job at predicting and drawing a paradigm for what makes money as they ever have. Um, which is really scary because they yeah. let go even more with more resistance. Um, yeah. So, until they start losing money, there won't be another open window for this kind of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, the beauty of late 80s, early 90s was that first of all, there was a real zeitgeist in the air artistically and socially that was changing and shifting and people were asking for something more than what studio system cinema was offering. Uh The other thing that was happening was that cable was becoming very cinematic um, and that cable was becoming very readily available. Um, The same that TV did to open up the seventies new wave cable did to open up the nineties new wave, um, which Minus one of those things that scares the studio system on a capitalistic level, rarely do we get open doors that hand o- over full control to independent filmmakers like Jim Jarmusch. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the 90s, from my own personal sp- perspective, um, you know, we're a great golden era for American cinema, but certainly a golden era for American independent cinema and independent cinema actually meant independent cinema back then. Um, We went through a little bubble in the early 2000s that the studio system had really embraced independent cinema, understanding it had become a staple of cinema, um, and that they better embrace it if they're going to start making some money on it. And then we get a whole lot of Little Miss Sunshines, and we get a whole lot of, um, you know, a little more refined, comedic, digestible indie films that were still very good films. Junos. Junos, which not as digestible as Little Miss Sunshine. Um, but um, exactly, though, exactly that genre of indie that was a feed off of that 90s, so basically that was once the studios stole independent film from independent film. And then you start getting these films. After that comes the almost like the blockbuster era on steroids. Mm-hmm. Um, usher in superhero films usher in Fast and Furious number 29 usher in um, or whatever number they're at at this point that guarantee money makers and they're <laughs> as a rule in Hollywood studio systems very little concern or regard for the artistry of cinema because they're not obligated I'm not telling them they're wrong for feeling that way but um, but that the studio system is a capitalist business venture um, that they will tell you straight up, they're doing what they're doing, and there's nothing wrong with it. However, for those of us that believe that cinema has a um, predominant role in the art world, it's um, it's very sad when the um, the artistry of cinema is is strangled out of the mainstream. Um, so, for example, uh, Jeff Nichols out of Austin, who made Mud, who made um, what was the one right after Mud, um, but has made a handful. Um, Oh, the Shotgun um, Diaries or Shotgun Stories his first one, but made a handful of independent films and very much playing by the model of the 90s filmmakers, the Linklaters, the Spike Lees, the Jim Jarmusch's, on and on and on, Um, um, salons that I mentioned earlier, all these guys that got their names, their opportunities um, in the 90s, David Lynch, um, that most of them haven't been heard from much in a while, in case you haven't noticed. It's not because they're getting old. It's not because they don't want to make films. It's that if they are making films, they don't have a lot of opportunity for exhibition anymore, even the ones that are implanted as heroes of cinema at this point, who will go down in history as heroes of cinema, like Jim Jarmusch, um, who still at this point have a very small window to get a film out and seen by a wide audience.
0: Yeah, I mean... it's
1: a shame that they almost get absorbed... After two or three good independent films like a Jeff Nichols, that yeah. if you continue to say I don't want to participate in the Hollywood studio system and do two for them, one for me, four for them, one for me, more like it today, right. that you almost you almost shrivel and die um, as yeah. far as the public um, um, accessibility to your work yeah. is concerned. I, I
0: never thought about it before, but you're right. I mean, other you know, you see occasional sp- Spike Lee film will get a wide release. Mm-hmm. But other than that, like pretty much of the '90s indie explosion, the only only auteur that's still getting big wide releases is Tarantino.
1: Absolutely, and there's and we could talk about that all day why that is, right. which I think most of us just know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but on the same side of it, I consider Jarmusch one of the most brilliant and keen and unique and original American filmmakers of all time. I will literally mm-hmm. say that. But certainly every bit as pinnacle interesting and reinventing of cinema and american cinema as tarantino was and yet jarmusch can still get a film made you're probably not going to see it unless you're a film nerd that seeks it out right um and i could go to a mainstream theater in the 90s and watch a jarmusch film see a link later film see on and on and on Linklater has stayed viable by playing two, three for you, one for me.
0: Right. <laughs> um, yeah.
1: So if you decide to go that Scorsese route and, and are willing to, to tickle the studios just enough, um, you can still get away with it. But you really do have to... Um, get swallowed up a little bit if you want to keep making films nowadays. And that's where I get scared when I get so excited about someone like a Jeff Nichols and numerous other young yeah. up and coming independent filmmakers. He's just kind of that epitome of modeling himself after the 90s independent filmmakers and adamant about sticking to that. And um and I'm watching him now somewhere around his fourth, fifth film now. He's getting really tired of having to fight for dollars. He's getting really tired. And yet at the same time he's one of these ones who refuses to make someone else's film.
0: All right, well, uh, that – I think it's about time to give the final summation.
1: I think so as well. do you think? Um, i on the edge of my seat.
0: Well, OK. So um, I didn't love this film. Uh, I wasn't – I I think the best thing I can say about this film, I mean minus everything I just everything I just mentioned with the um how how um the style, how much the style appealed to me and how easy it was for me to get into the rhythm of it uh and appreciate the style and I kind of knew what he was going for. Um the best thing I can say about this film is that it didn't bore me, <laughs> which is not a bad thing at all. Like usually it's not. you Usually, like with most films, if you say the best thing I can say about it is it wasn't boring, that's kind of damning with faint praise. Yes. But here I don't think it is because this film, like Todd said, could have so easily been boring.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I was just about to say of all the films I've given you, this is the only film I would have taken that as, as uh, somewhat of a compliment.
0: It's, it's, <laughs> it's very slow. Um, but... I will say that I was never bored by it. I was really intrigued by the performances. I thought Benini was just fantastic. Yeah. Um Waits and Lurie were Waits and Lurie and, um, and the music. Know, and it looked, <laughs> you know, the film looked great even when even when I started to lose interest a little bit, I was still captivated by the visuals, what was put on screen. Um it is it's not my kind of film. Um even films of this type that appeal. I I, I would say I like ghost dog better. Mm-hmm. I liked this better than dead man and broken flowers. I don't okay. think I liked it as much as I like ghost dog, not my type of film, not really the kind of thing that I would, even though I did have this on my list as something that I wanted to see mm-hmm. because um, of all the things I've heard about it. And the fact that I like Tom Waits and on and on. Um, he, but that being said, it's not the kind of thing that I really typically would seek out. Um, and there's a reason that it has been on my list for years and years and exactly. I never did seek it out, you know. Um, but that being said, I mean, you know, highbrow, even though it's awesome. not even though it's not my type of film, I still appreciate, you know, for what it is. Um, wasn't boring. There was a lot of really beautiful stuff to look at. Uh kept my interest and i i definitely got something out of it so yeah good highbrow um, awesome un, unreservedly highbrow
1: good highbrow. Highbrow. a moment a word about next week
0: i've assigned uh todd the second mexican film that i've assigned him actually after chronos from 1977 directed by Juan Lopez Moctezuma the film is called Alucarda
1: we are going to go with ha, 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 Pedro Almodovar uh-huh all about my mother that
0: is one of the Almodovar films i have not seen good so there you
1: go i knew you were familiar with almodovar yeah and what year did you take you to early but right. so what year um, okay, so All About My Mother is
0: 1999. 1999, yes. All About My Mother. Todo Sobre Mi Madre. All right, so it's going to be a Spanish-language uh, festival next time. Indeed. Uh, all About My Mother from 1999 and Alucarda,
1: Alucarda. from 1977. And until
0: then... <laughs> I'm Todd. Keep it artsy. I'm Cullen keep it crass mm-hmm. okay good people as always we would love to hear from you the email is artscrasspodcast at gmail.com or you can say hi on our Facebook page there is another podcast called Arts and Crass they have a white logo we have a red and black one should be pretty easy to tell who's who the boys are go to hell and then the Cubans at the floor they drive along the pipeline Sore. They take apart their nightmares and they leave 'em by the door. Let me fall out of the window with confetti in my hair. Deal out jacks bed on a blanket by the stairs. I tell you all my secrets, but I love my past and send me off to bed forevermore. The world is a sad and beautiful place.